0: welcome. All right. Um, So I'm going to be reading the passage for today's sermon. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone from the back will give one to you. If you don't have one, if you don't own one, you're welcome to take that as our gift to you. Today's reading is Psalm 67. So if you want to rise and join me in the reading of the word. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity, and guide the nations among earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of God to the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: <laughs> Are we good? Good? All right. Wow. Well, uh, I work in uh, government acquisitions, and so we're, we're often worried about over-promising and under-delivering, and after an introduction like that, <laughs> uh, no, but in all reality, we do serve an awesome God, and all of the blessings <laughs> that, that may have uh, come, come through, through us to you all, it has been tenfold in the opposite, and, and this, this church and this congregation has been family, um, So, right, my name is Brian, (laughs) and I am humbled and honored and delighted uh, to stand before you all this morning and to share God's word with you. Uh, I would ask how you all are doing, but if I did that, I'd get like four enthusiastic people to respond. (laughs) Um, So instead, I'm just going to recognize that some of you here are doing great, that you're abounding in joy and life is awesome. And some of you are probably moving so fast and have so much going on in your life that you... Don't even know how to process that question You haven't even stopped to think how, how am I doing? And there are some of you here this morning Who are coming from really difficult places And so with that recognition I just want to say wherever you are this morning And whatever your circumstance is You are welcome here And this is a people amongst whom you are welcome And this is a people amongst whom You are loved So I'm going to go ahead and pray (laughs) again, and then we'll get started. Lord, would you make your name hallowed here this morning? Father, would you cause your name to be made much of in our hearts this morning and for the rest of our lives, Father? Uh, May we (laughs) come before your word, Lord, and be desperate for you and desperate for your word, and may we say... As, as your servant Peter did, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else can we go? Lord, and, and, and would you, by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause your word to be preached and accomplish your purposes for your glory? And if anything comes out, Lord, that is not of you, but is, but is just from me, I pray again by the power of your Spirit that you would brush that aside in your grace and let it not cause distraction or offense, Lord. We thank you that you have heard us and that you respond to the prayers of your children. Amen. So the other week uh, at work, I was at a conference, and, and someone used a phrase uh, that I didn't think much of at the time, but later I kind of recognized that within this phrase there's a really, I think, a profound comment on the way that a lot of us live our lives. And the phrase that he used was that we need to move at the speed of relevance, that we need to move at the speed of relevance. And... And as I reflected on that, I realized that 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 really does, I think, have a lot to say about the way that we live our lives, because I think one way to understand and interpret relevance is just the expectations and the desires of other people. And it has been my experience that in our culture, there is, maybe in all of the human experience, a, a deep pressure individually for each one of us to perform and we feel that in order to be accepted and loved to be to really count for something to really make something of ourselves we have to keep up with people's expectations of us with we have to be the kind of thing that they prefer and the way that I see it, that that leads ultimately to one of two places. One is that it leads you to kind of this rotten pride where, where you're, you're, you're really, you're doing it, you know? Like you're keeping up with expectations, and, and you are the kind of thing, you're the one who sought after, and everyone wants, wants something from you, wants to be with you, and, and you have this constant affirmation. But in the midst of it, if there's nothing deeper than that, there's in the middle of that kind of this rottenness. It doesn't really satisfy. Or on the other hand, that's just... Crushing, And if you can't keep up, and, and you're not the thing that people are looking for, and you're not meeting expectations, and it's lonely, and it's isolating, and it's just, it brings, it, brings, it brings such an unbearable weight. But this morning, as we read through Psalm 67, what we're going to see is that the one who has all authority on heaven and on earth simply invites us to abide with him, to abide in his love, and that he has no concern for our merits. He doesn't give a single thought for whether or not you're keeping up with expectations or whether you're the kind of thing that people prefer. Not one thought, because with our God, his love precedes your performance. He does not love you because you are great, but in his love, he makes you more than you are apart from him. So let's go ahead and jump in, and we're just going to walk through this psalm verse by verse. In verse 1, the psalmist opens up by saying, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. I think sometimes in the church, we kind of get used to that sort of language, and so it just kind of brushes right by us. But, but really stop and look at this. This is such tender and intimate and relational language. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. Lord, I need your grace. God, I need your blessing in my life. And I need your face and the light that you bring to shine into my darkness. There's this deep dependency and deep relational language here. When, uh, when my older sister was very young, she, as, as all children do, I think, had this uh, deep desire and craving for the attention and affection of, of our parents. And so when my dad would be holding her, and then would have the audacity to look somewhere else, like, I don't know, to talk to somebody or look where he's going to make sure he doesn't, like, fall while he's carrying his daughter, uh, she, she would correct his, his, his error by, by manually <laughs> turning his face back, and she would just reach out for his face. It was just this childish, just no pretension, just like, Dad, Dad, no, I'm here. <laughs> look at look at me. <laughs> why, why would you look somewhere else? And, and I think, like, in a story like that, that's really cute, but when we experience that kind of thing in our day-to-day, right, we're, well, but we're adults, right? We're not like that. That's, like, a, that's a childish thing to do. There's, like, no awareness of social cues. You don't, like, grab people's faces, like, and that's self-centered and, like, selfish, and kids just, like, they want attention, but, but I think this is the language that our God is giving us to, to, to speak with him, to desire his face to be turned upon us. And the beautiful thing is that his face is never turned away. And it's just this continuous childlike dependence that we're invited into to long for our God. God, would you turn your face upon me and cause your face to shine upon us? And that's another thing that we need to pick up right here at the beginning. This is a corporate psalm. It is all about the us. Right? And so, so this is, this, this, if you're taking notes, that's something that's gonna, that's really important, that as we abide, we do not simply, we do abide individually, but we do not simply abide individually. We abide as a group. Because verse one actually gets even way better. <laughs> um, because one of the things about the Psalms is that when we read the Psalms, we're reading poems that are thousands of years old. And I don't know about you, but I find modern poetry very confusing let alone poems that are written in a cultural context that I have absolutely no point of reference for. So as we come to the Psalms, we need to sit and we need to meditate on them, and we need to walk slowly through them, or we're going to miss some things. Uh, because this first verse is actually, it's, a, it's an abridged quote, or like a paraphrase from something that the Israelites were taught further back in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. So a quick pause, story time. The, the Israelite nation was essentially, essentially birthed into slavery, right? That there was one family, right, living in Egypt, and that as they began to multiply and began to become a people, Egypt, out of fear of them, decided to, to take preemptive action and, and force them into servitude. And they murdered children, and they did all sorts of horrible things and, and, and aggressively oppressed them and used them as slave labor and 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 then in the story of exodus right so the picture we're kind of given is basically that god has kind of held a bucket under all of the evil that egypt has poured out on others and he has stored it up and through with many warnings and opportunities to repent and turn away he begins to take that very same evil and cause it then to fall back on the heads of the Egyptians who perpetrated it in the first place. And in bringing that divine justice, he pulls his people out from slavery, out from oppression, and he leads them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And they're there for, for about a year. And during their time there, he gives them laws. And, and they're very confusing and odd to read. <laughs> but, but like at, at bottom, what they are about is they are about a holy God teaching his people how to organize every aspect of their lives so that he can dwell with them, so that he can be their God and they can be his people. And so it's all about this abiding and dwelling. And at the tail end, that law takes the whole book of Leviticus and then we get into Numbers. In the first few chapters of Numbers, is God continuing to give the law up and through chapter six. And at the end of chapter six is where God gives his people this blessing. He tells Moses, he says, go and tell Aaron that these are the words that you are to speak over my people, that they are to regularly do this. Ask him, may God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. And so we see not only this childlike dependence and intimacy that we're invited into with God, but we're shown that God moves first. And he saves his people out of oppression, and he moves towards them, and he teaches them how to be a nation that is, that, that is a just and equitable nation, a nation with whom he dwells, and through whom he blesses the earth. Because further back in the Old Testament, God told Abraham that I will make of you a great nation, and through your seed I will bless the earth. And so in Numbers we see that happening, the establishment of this nation. And so the psalmist moves on to verse 2 and says, and it's not even a different sentence, right? Like we chop it up into two verses, but this is one thought. This is one breath. May God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. And so what the psalmist is doing here is he's tapping into this, this, this cultural understanding of the Jewish people that, that they were somehow, that God had promised, that it wasn't entirely clear how, but somehow through them he was going to bless all the nations of the world. And this is the theme of scripture from beginning to end, right? That, that in the beginning, you see God creating the world and, and filling it with, his, with, his, uh, with people and filling it with his creation. And he tells Adam and Eve to go to spread to the ends of the earth, be fruitful and multiply to the ends of the earth. And that doesn't, doesn't just mean like have lots of kids. It means like multiply all of the blessings that have been given to you and fill the globe with them. And in the end, as Theodore read this morning, the end of the story is people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation standing before the throne praising God because salvation, his saving power, is known on the earth. And so there is this, the Bible asserts that there is an absolute, invariable, and inextricable link between abiding with the Lord and with his way being made known on the earth that as surely as a seed planted in good soil and given the proper nutrients will grow, will bloom, will blossom, and bear fruit, God's people dwelling with and abiding with and communing with him will absolutely invariably grow in a way that causes his character, right? This word that your way may be known on the earth, it's, it's His way, the way that he is, what he is like, his character, how he interacts with his creation, what his values are, that that his way will be made known on the earth. And so I think it's good for us to pause here and start to just invite some some self-inspection. Because this is the assertion of scripture that that if A, then B— But oftentimes I think we have a really hard time with the second part of that. Or at least I think we think we have a hard time with that, but maybe where we're really having the hard time is the abiding. Because God's promise is that if we abide with him, he will work in and through us to accomplish, be, to accomplish his word being taken to the ends of the earth. And so I think that, that, we just, that we need to take some time and ask our questions. Does our definition of abiding with God, does our definition of abiding with him, of receiving his blessings, and of communing with the holy God, does that definition include the nations? Does that definition include taking his word and making his way known on the earth? And if it, if it doesn't, then I think we are invited here to reconsider. Again, as we jump to the New Testament, when Jesus is talking with his disciples for for one of the last times, what he says, he says, look, I've conquered the grave. All authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what does he tell them to do with that information? He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Teach them to obey All that I have commanded. But we can't make disciples of all nations unless we first are disciples of Christ. But also, if we are disciples of Christ, we cannot help but make disciples of all nations. This is the pattern that is given to us in Scripture, and if 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 that feels distant or hard for you, this is not a message of, of condemnation, this is an invitation. Because when Jesus also said was that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's not Jesus being petty and manipulative and kind of kicking back with his disciples and being like, well, you say you love me, but prove it. Do what I tell you to do. Like, that's not what Jesus' heart is here. That's, that is manipulation, and that is never the heart of our God. Our, heart, our God invites us into his love. What, he, what Jesus is saying there, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's just making a comment on what it means to, to, to be a human is that our hearts are controlled by the things that we love. The things that we value most will inevitably then color our behavior, right? So if, so, as we kind of seek to process through this, if we, if we feel like missions is for other people, and, and also this, this is not saying mission, the only definition of missions is not selling everything you have and going to some foreign country and and. and living there for the rest of your life and being martyred for your faith. Like, that's not the only definition of missions. The definition of missions is making disciples. And that begins in your own community. That begins in your own home. That begins wherever you dwell. But it has to begin. And it has to happen. And it needs to take place. And the invitation is that as we abide with our God, he will inevitably cause that to happen. And so the psalmist moves on. The natural, the natural outflow of that is, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Now, if I'm the psalmist, this is, this is not what I write and that is one of the many reasons why I'm not the psalmist, but but when he says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, like I'm with you, that's great, (laughs) for you judge the nations with equity and guide, you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. That's a little bit harder because God's role as judge (laughs) isn't typically the thing that gets me fired up in the morning. Like thinking of God as the judge is, is not always associated with shouts of joy. Right? And that is what he's calling the nations to. Do. This he's calling them to raucous praise. Like like very like loud and full of joy. It's not like, okay, well like they said we're gonna sing now, so we're gonna sing. It's like, no, there's so much joy that I have right now that I cannot help but sing. I have made glad and I will shout for joy. But that's not the immediate association in In my heart <laughs> um, so so let 's sit with that too for a little. Why is the psalmist asserting that god 's role as judge is is so tightly associated with joy? well I, I think for one, we would see that that it 's likely that the thing that would be foremost in the the israelites mind when they hear this this this, about this role of a divine judge would have been the Exodus story, like we talked about, where God saved his people from Egypt by bringing the evil that they perpetrated back on their own heads. And so they had an understanding that the only way for, for there to be a just world, for the world to be made a just place, is through judgment. That God's role as a judge is the only thing that secures ultimate justice. And ultimate justice is a thing to, be, to, 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 to sing and to be glad about and have joy over. But, but the, the picture gets a little bit more complicated <laughs> because... Because Egypt, in the minds and understanding th- throughout Scripture, was not simply then just limited to the, the physical country, but it became a, a type and a symbol for the corruption that lives in each and every one of our own hearts as well. And later on in the Scriptures, through the prophets, we see that, that Israel is kind of cast as a second Egypt, as they themselves become corrupt and oppressive towards others. And so we find ourselves, yes, wanting to praise God for being judged, but also in a difficult place, because each and every one of us, each and every one of us is guilty at some point in our lives, probably more than we're willing to recognize in our own lives, of using our minds, our bodies, our resources, whatever it is, to manipulate and to control other people. Each and every one of us is guilty of viewing people as an obstacle to be overcome, a problem to be avoided, or a resource to be used. Every single one of us is guilty of that. And the problem is even worse than that because evil is not only what causes us to view people as objects rather than than beings made in God's image with inherent value and dignity and worth, made to be loved and cherished, to be built up and encouraged and, and to be taught the truth and to be invited into his joy. But evil is also what causes us to remain silent in the face of evil. It's also what causes us to be apathetic And to not act for the cause of justice when we ought to. It's what causes us to be more concerned with our comforts, with our entertainment, than with taking God's saving word to the ends of the earth. Because God is a judge. And so we're left here in this place of tension where we want to be able to praise God for being judged, but we're also, we're also complicit in the injustice, right? God is not going to leave the world as it is. He is going to redeem it, and that is good news. He's going to rid it of human evil, but there is human evil that dwells in each and every one of us. So what do we do? Well, again, the psalmist moves on in a kind of unexpected fashion from here. He closes the psalm. By saying, The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let the ends of the earth fear him. Well, that's very nice, but I don't know how that helps me resolve this tension that you just put me in. But several hundred to a thousand years after this, there was a Jewish rabbi in, around Galilee, and, and he was on a hillside, with a lot of those broken, smelly, sick people that we are all too quick to view as obstacles, as problems, or as resources. And he sat with them and he made some observations about the way that the world works. He made some observations about the sun and the rain, which are so vital for the harvest. He sat with them and he said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father who is in heaven for he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and he causes his sun to rise on the righteous and on the wicked and what he was doing there is he's that's right in the context of he'd been teaching these people about what God is like and what his kingdom is like and what it's like to live under his rule, and what it's like to live as his people, to what it's like to live abiding with him. And he's saying, look, your father in heaven is the kind of being, he's the kind of God who loves those who hate him, who loves his enemies. He is the kind of God who prays for those who persecute him. And so there's hope. And he went on after that. And he, and he, he, as he observed the crowds further, it says that he looked out on them. And the emotion that he felt, what he felt in seeing their brokenness and the injustice, is he said he had compassion on them. It says he looked out and he had compassion on them for they were like, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't see them as a bunch of people who opposed him. He didn't see them as a bunch of people who he wanted to just... Manage their minds and change the way that he loved them. He had compassion on them. And then he turns to his disciples after that and he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest that he would send his laborers out. Notice that he doesn't say, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, can I get a couple of volunteers? Because he knew Peter would be the first one to raise his hand, and he was like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, he said, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what? Pray. What is praying? It's, it's part of, it's so much of how we abide with our God. Because he had another teaching about harvests and about plants. He, in in um, John chapter 15, he's, he's talking to his disciples again, and he says, Guys, I am the vine, I am the source, you all are the branches, you only function, you only bear fruit insofar as you are abiding in me, as you are plugged into and dwelling with and enjoying fellowship and communion with me. God, I need your blessing, God, I need your grace, God, I need your face to shine upon me. And he said, Unless you abide in me and in my love, you will not bear fruit. And this this same rabbi went on after that, this same Jesus, in a rented out space, celebrating Passover with, with some of his closest friends, with his disciples. And he he gave thanks for a harvest in a different way. He gave thanks for the harvest in the form of the bread that he took and broke. And he said, you are to continue to do this in remembrance of what I have done. The earth has yielded its increase. And he gave thanks for the harvest of the vine. And he took the cup and he gave it to them. And he said, I'm not going to drink of this again until I drink it with you in my father's house is where I'm going. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I am coming back for you. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let the ends of the earth fear him. And so we come to, this, to the resolution of this question on judgment that we asked earlier. And again, I think a lot of times we just we want <coughs> the justice side of things, without the judgment, right? We want all of the, the justice and the goodness and the, and the wholeness and the peace on earth to, to materialize and God to just kind of disappear the injustice, just kind of like make it go away. But that's not how the world works. When something is broken, if I come to your house and I, and I damage your property and I break all your stuff, Either I have to pay to fix it, you have to pay to fix it, or it gets left broken. (laughs) Our God is resolute that he will not leave his world broken. That he is going to rid this world of human evil, and he is going to accomplish that. But we have insufficient funds to make up for what we've broken. And so there is one hope, and one hope alone, and that would be that God in his grace and in his mercy would say, yes, I see everything you have broken. I see each and every bit of it, and I will pay it in full. And so the day after Jesus broke the bread and took the cup with his disciples, he was crucified in accordance with what the scriptures had said that he would, be, he would be bruised that he would be striped that he would be broken for our transgressions for our iniquity and that's just bible words of saying our complicity in the brokenness of the world in the evil that exists that he would pay for it all in full. And so we find the resolution of this, this issue of justice. And so now we can find that we can both praise God for being a judge and praise him for, for bringing us through that judgment. And why? 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 Why, does he, why does he want to abide with us in the first place? Why, why did he need to do that? Why didn't he go to the cross? Why, did he, why is he going to pay for all of the things that we've broken? Because he loves you and he loves this whole world. That's why you can't know God deeply and intimately and not love his world, because that's where his heart is. And, and when we experience his love, love, love transforms us, and it changes us. And when we're near his heart, our heart begins to break for the things that his heart breaks for, and it's long for the things that his heart longs for. And what God has written down on every page of his scriptures is that he loves his creation, and he loves his people, and that he longs for redemption to be brought. And he has accomplished that in Christ. And in Ephesians Paul tells us, he says, look, what God revealed in Christ was the fullness of his plan, that one day he is going to unite all things in himself. And in Psalm 16, he tells us that it's in his presence where's the fullness of joy. So what he's going to do is he's bringing us into the fullness of joy. (laughs) He tells us that it says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, who sits at the right hand of the throne on high? It is Jesus Christ who was lifted up and broken for our transgressions. And now in his presence, the unity that he brings us into with himself, we have the fullness of joy. We have pleasures forevermore. It tells us that the fruits of God's spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And that is what we're being brought into the unity with. All of that around the whole globe. We're also told in the scriptures that one day, the knowledge of the God is going to cover the face of the earth as waters cover the face of the deep. But we are not there yet. And in the interim, what God has chosen to do is to carry that good news to the ends of the earth. And some of you are there, and some of you are just, as Edward would say, amped. Some of you are just psyched on that, and some of you were so excited and, and flowing with joy about that and actively seeking that, and some of you are having a really hard time with that. And, and so as we've talked about, again, like God as judge, we've kind of made this, these assertions about God's love. I think maybe part of the reason that, that we have a hard time with this is because we have a hard time believing things that we don't want to be true. But I think sometimes we have a lot harder over time believing things that we desperately long for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't like to think about God as a judge because that's uncomfortable and we don't want to think about it. But I think we play down God's love for us because it is our soul's deepest longing. that, that our, our deepest fears are hard to face. But we guard our deepest longings even more jealously. So God does not love you in any way that you've been loved by any other person. He does not love you because of some loveliness that you have within you. There is nothing you can do to attract his love. Because you never didn't have it. (laughs) It was never missing. And it doesn't come to you because you have loveliness. He creates loveliness in you by his love. And so in in a minute, we're going to come up and take communion. We are going to continue to celebrate this, this breaking of bread and the giving of the cup that Jesus instituted with his disciples. But as we do it, don't miss the why. Because in doing it, he told his disciples, look back on your past and remember what I have done. I have purchased all of it, everything. I have redeemed you from your past. I have brought you out of it. I have brought you out of the, the hard Egypt-heartedness of your past. And I have secured your future. I'm coming back. I'm coming back as a judge to redeem this world. But because you abide in me, because you have been redeemed with me already, when I come back, what, I, what you will be brought into will be, will be my rest, will be this kingdom of God that is ruled over by this God who loves even his enemies. But on that day there will be no, when in heaven when we are with God and stand before the throne, there will be no more animosity, there will be no, nothing left to pay for. And so if you're, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a believer, that you don't believe that, there is, that you are complicit in human wickedness and that the only way for that to be fixed is by the redemptive work that Christ accomplished on the cross on your behalf, if you don't believe that that's true and have not accepted it, don't come forward to take communion because communing with God happens after you take his invitation. So instead... Stay where you are. Just hang out in your seat. No one's going to look at you sideways or judge you or say anything about it. But just sit and contemplate this. Contemplate the love that is before you. And if you feel the Spirit moving in your heart, just don't leave today without doing something about it. Text someone, call someone, ask someone here next to you. Ask me, ask, ask anyone. Just don't sit on it. Why would you sit on it? If, if there's something stirring in your heart, then allow it to happen and respond to it. And likewise, if you're believers, come and take the bread and take the cup and, and and hear the words that God, his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you, not to give you a convenient out on judgment day, but so that he can abide with you forever and not just forever starting after you die but starting now. That you can abide in his love and bear fruit now and be part of ushering in God's kingdom now. And if the spirit moves in your heart, again, don't sit on it. Act. If God is leading you to do something, if the power of his spirit is moving in your heart and telling you to do something, do it. Again, before you come to the table, if you need to be reconciled to someone, go be reconciled to them. If you need to text someone and say, hey, we need to sit down and talk about my finances and the way that I orient my life and the way that I orient my heart because it's not in accordance with God's values. We need to cancel my cable or my Netflix or whatever it is. Like Whatever it is that's holding you back whatever the Spirit would move in your heart and would lead you to do, trust it. He's not going to mislead you. Respond to your Creator. And so I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. And then there will be communion tables in the front and in the back. And you can go there, take your time, listen to the Spirit, and what Christ has done for you will be spoken over you. Lord, um, God, uh, in your word you tell us that, uh, that you are the one who fills all in all. But just before that, Lord, you tell us that, that, that Christ is the head of the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a weighty title you have given to us, Lord. Now you call us your body. You call us your bride. You have have caused us to be the ones through whom you Rid, you, you, you bring this world back into redemption with you because of what Christ has done and what you have, because you've reconciled us to yourself, now you send us out as ministers of reconciliation. Lord, your church is your plan to reach the nations. And that applies to every single person in here who is indwelt by your spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would make us incandescent with that knowledge that you would cause us to be luminous for having your face shining upon us. Because, Lord, you will never turn your face away. You turned your face away from one. That was from Christ when he was crucified, so that it will never, ever, ever be turned away from us. Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit, accomplish your purposes. You tell us that your word will not go forth and return to your void, but it will accomplish exactly what you intended it to.